Today's first scripture reading is from 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 11 through 14. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Mark chapter 1, 32 through 39. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So earlier this year... I drove up with a friend to a retreat center in Germantown, Maryland, to spend a day in solitude and in fasting. We started the day together with a group who had uh, also gone there for the same thing and reflected on a reading from the Christian mystic St. John of the Cross. But the rest of the day, we spent on the grounds outside for, I don't know, like five or six hours alone in solitude. And it was one of the first times that I had tempted to do fasting and solitude for that amount of time, uh, and, and to be honest with you, it's pretty hard. <laughs> it's difficult to persevere because your mind is always busy, and you're thinking about the things you have to do, and your task list, and all these thoughts that are coming in. There's this constant reflex to pull up my phone, even though I put it on a- notif- uh, airplane mode uh, so that I wouldn't get notifications for that, for that day. But as hard as it was, there was also a gift, the gift of finding this inner calm of being in God's presence or sensing this closeness with God in ways that the rest of the week you're so full of that you can't pay attention to. And whenever these distracting thoughts came in, I would simply say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner saved by grace. Or other times I would just say, Jesus, I'm here. What's going on? Be with me. Over time, this routine of fasting and solitude t- together has become a little more regular for me each week. I, haven't, I don't go for full day solitude retreats yet regularly. That was the last time in May. But I, over time, through these practices, I found my mind less cluttered. I feel like I can hear God more quickly, and, and I also find myself less anxious about the things I need to do and the things I, uh, that are burdening my heart, about the concerns that I've been carrying. But I also can't help feeling that allocating such a significant amount of time to solitude, especially a day-long one or even a planned multi-day retreat, it seems really extravagant. It seems 
impractical in light of all the other demands of my life. During our small group a couple weeks back, one of the small group members says, like, what, we have to do, like, solitude on top of Sabbath, on top of fasting, on top of praying? Like, how do we fit this all in? Henry Nouwen calls solitude wasting time on God. He didn't mean that solitude is a waste of time. But in a culture where accomplishment and accumulation are the gods that rule our lives, we're constantly tethered to our devices and we want to respond to all of the notifications. And I know some of you don't like to hear, see any of your notifications left and you have to clear them, right? Spending a day sitting in the quiet, listening for God and allowing all those notifications to pile up on your phone, it seems like a waste of time. I mean, what do you have to show for it at the end of the day? You certainly don't get a dopamine hit from swiping those notifications, right? But as we've been learning in the series, solitude, and Crystal mentioned it earlier in the service, just quality me time, alone time to get re-energized. It's primarily alone time with God. Solitude is where we carve out time in our day where we eliminate distractions and inputs for a certain time period so that the only remaining inputs are God and our hearts open before God. God and our hearts open before God. Laying our soul open before our maker is perhaps the best use of our time that we could possibly do. Jesus' followers throughout the Christian history echo this same sentiment, this importance of the practice of solitude in our spiritual lives. A young man once approached Father Amonas, a early church father, asking him for spiritual direction, for some counsel in his spiritual life. And, he, and Father Amonas says this, Behold, my beloved, I have shown you the power of silence, or solitude, how thoroughly it heals and how fully pleasing it is to God. It is by silence that the saints grew. It was because of silence that the power of God dwelt in them. Because of silence that the mysteries of God were known to them. What Father Amonis and so many others, ancient and modern, say is, no matter what your personality type is, no matter what stage of life you are in, solitude, silence, and stillness are for everyone. And they hold a power for transformation in our lives that few spiritual disciplines offer to us. Why is this? Because in solitude, we encounter God, or we can encounter God. In recent weeks, we've learned how solitude is this place of encounter, encountering our enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil, encountering ourselves, as Bethany reminded us last week, encountering our pains and our emotions and the burdens that we carry. And today, we're going to look at how the most important encounter serves us, encountering God, encountering God. In Mark chapter 1, it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as Roz read for us. Jesus has been busy teaching in the synagogue. He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. And people are knocking at his door, wanting more of him. He's getting things done in God's kingdom. He's taking care of business. And if Jesus were living in our day and age, his DMs would be filling up, and he'd be getting requests for speaking engagements, traveling across the world. And he'd have to, in fact, maybe have to ask Peter and John uh, to set up a comms team and a public relations team to handle all the requests and start a YouTube and a podcast. 
And then on Saturday morning, maybe he says, okay, hey, Peter, James, and John, he'd go to the wharf with them and have a Sunday, Saturday brunch, right? That's what would, you would do in this time and age. But what does Jesus do? We're told, very early in the morning, while it's still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. As we've been learning in this series, this word solitary place that we see here in Mark is, comes from the Greek word eremos. It's also translated as wilderness or desert or the quiet place. Jesus often withdrew into solitude, away from people, away from noise, away from the demands, and even away from his closest leaders. Notice how his leaders, his closest companions, didn't even know where he went. They didn't even have find my friends on the phone to find, see where Jesus went so that they can go looking for him. It was almost like Jesus was intentionally hiding from people. And perhaps that's an essential part of being an apprentice of Jesus, that this idea includes learning to hide with God. But notice what happened, and some of you introverts are like, yeah, that's the kind of Jesus I like. Hide from people. See, that's what following Jesus is like. But notice what happens immediately after Jesus is found by his disciples. He isn't annoyed. He isn't bothered. He doesn't say, oh, just give me some more time to myself. And he isn't worried about being recognized and try to catch this wave of rising interest when he's in Capernaum. He says, what does he say? Let's go somewhere else. Let's go to another village so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. Catholic spiritual writer Catherine de Hewick Doherty says this about solitude. This silence then will break forth into a charity that overflows in the service of the neighbor without counting the cost. It will witness to Christ anywhere, always. Availability will be delightsome and easy for each person. In each person, the soul will see the face of her love. Hospitality will be deep and real for a silent heart is a loving heart and a loving heart is a hospice in the world. As we've noted earlier in this series, Jesus has this rhythm of retreating and then returning. Retreating and returning. He goes into solitude to encounter God, but then he goes back into the community to serve and to love and to, and to be with others. He goes away to be alone with God, but then he returns to life and ministry with a sense of purpose and identity and what he's called to do next. And because of this rhythm of retreat with God and return to be with people, Jesus lived out of this clear sense of identity and calling. His solitude with God informed his presence in the world. And you introverts are like, nah, I don't like that kind of Jesus. Jesus' example reveals something about our contemporary approach to identity and calling. In light of Jesus, we find that identity and calling are things to be unearthed. They're formed, but not by us. They're formed by God, who created us and who knows us best. And when I word, use the word identity, I, I use it in the sense of how we experience ourselves in the world. So you see, we all live from a place of identity or a sense of self, and how I see myself informs how I move about in the world. Some of this sense of identity is informed by our ethnicity and our cultural background. For instance, I am a Chinese-American who grew up in Canada. 
Some of us is, is informed, some of this sense of identity is informed by our interests and our attractions, whether it's a hobby or whether it's a cause or a political affiliation, a faith tradition, or a sexual orientation. Some, we, we take these things and inform our identity. For example, I like things that go fast. So I have a lot of useless information to most about cars and bikes and, and motorcycles. It, it's become part of my identity. But identity formation in Christian spirituality is very different. It's very different from how identity is determined in our postmodern contemporary culture. You see, our identity isn't something we choose, like, a fashion, like choosing a fashion style that we want to present to the world. Identity isn't like choosing a car that says this is the kind of lifestyle and personality that you have or the political affiliation that you have, identify with. Our identity isn't something we choose. It's something we discover. It's something that we receive as a gift from God. A helpful uh, image for me in, in this understanding of identity is seeing identity formation less like architecture and more like archaeology. Less like arche architecture and more like archaeology. It's less something that we go and shop around, look at all the styles and the history and assemble what we want to express, to build a home that expresses our wishes and our values. And it's more like something that we unearth from the ground with God's help. It's less drafting blueprints for the house that you want to build and build it from the ground up. And it's more like spending time with God's help and guidance, gently unearthing soil to reveal the beautiful building that's buried under rubble and earth. In our culture, we use the language of discovering and presenting our true and authentic selves to the world. But through the lens of Christian spirituality, our true and authentic selves aren't something that we can seek for ourselves as much as we try. Our true and authentic self is found in our seeking of God. When we seek God, we encounter what Henry Nouwen, the spiritual writer, calls the inner voice of love. It's where God speaks over our life exactly as we are with all of our strengths, with all of our gifts, but also with all of our flaws, with all of our failures, and with all of our pains and wounds. When we encounter God in solitude, we are able to see and name those things in the presence of the God of love. And we can name these things because they are true of us, but they are not the truest things of us. The truest thing about us for those who have responded to God's love in Christ, is that we are in Christ, using New Testament language. In solitude, we are able to get away from other people, but also other voices that speak over our identity. And these voices often tell us what to love and what to hate. They tell us what to praise and what to criticize. They tell us what we're for and what we're against. And these identity inputs prevent us from allowing God's loving voice to speak over our identity so that we can have new clarity of who we are in Christ. In solitude, we don't have to change the facts about 
our experience. Something happened to us, that doesn't change. Our emotions attached to that event, that doesn't change. Those are true. But our interpretation of what those experiences mean, they change in light of God's love. Well, how we interpret and see the stories that we tell ourselves about emotions, about our ev the events that we've experienced, that can change in light of God's love and being in God's presence. So not only is our identity unearthed when in solitude before God, but also our calling. Where identity is how we see and experience ourselves in the world, our calling is what we are to do in the world. As Jesus models for us, retreating with God is intended to result in returning to the world that we live in. Spiritual writer Thomas Merton says this, we do not go into the desert to escape people but to learn how to find them. We don't go to the desert to escape people, but to learn how to find them. And desert, other desert fathers and mothers have said this, we retreat from the world for the world. We retreat from the world for the world. In solitude, we learn to say yes to God's call in our life, but we also learn to say no to all the other demands on our life. The opposite of contemplation in solitude is not action. It's reaction. A life of the opposite to a life of contemplation is not a life of action. It's a life of reaction. It's the opposite to contemplation is the pinball life where we're trying to keep the ball running. Oh, that, this, this ball's falling. We've got to keep it up. Oh, it's bouncing off this. Keep this ball up. The opposite of contemplative life is the frenetic life trying to respond to all the inputs that demand our attention. Quaker contemplative Parker Palmer says this, Before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. Before you tell your life what truths and values you have decided to live up to, let your life do what truths you embody and what values you represent. See, this idea of dictating our vocation to our lives is misguided. See, vocation is received. It's not created. It's discovered by listening, not by speaking validation or seeking information and affirmation from the outside world. Our identity and our calling is not sought and built by us, as much as our instincts tell us that. They are received, they are unearthed, and they are formed by God's gracious and loving work in our lives. When we give God the space to do that. And the practice of solitude is one of the primary ways that we can give God the space to do that. In solitude, we get to know how God is for me, how God is with me, and God is in me. And as a result of that, we come to know our truest selves, unencumbered by all these external voices, unencumbered by the wounds that we carry in our attempts to control our lives, to manage our lives. Ruth Haley Barton says this about a life of solitude, that this kind of sense of self produced by solitude. She says, this self 
is smaller, in one sense, than the ego identity. Because it does not need to be big in order to prove itself to the world. This self is truer because it does not rely on image management to find acceptance in the world. This self is softer because it does not rely on hardened defense structures to keep itself safe in the world. This self is freer because it knows itself to be finally and ultimately held in a love that is unchangeable and real. This love does not lose track of us no matter what dark places we must walk into. It is a love deeper than any abyss that we might fall into. It is a love with the power to heal any brokenness we might encounter. And this love eventually becomes bedrock of settledness at the core of our being. How many of you want to live a life of self like that? It comes through encountering God. A softer, truer, gentler self. You know, Jesus went away. Jesus went into the Eremos, into the solitude, not to escape the world, but to return to the world after encountering God. When we go into solitude with God, we encounter ourselves and our pain, as Bethany mentioned last week. We also encounter our enemies that are put, holding us against from this life that God has for us, to be free of those voices. But that's not just why we go there. We go to encounter God, to hear God's voice speaking over our identity and our calling. And so our fundamental posture, our fundamental activity in solitude is quiet listening. Our lives are so used to filling our minds with opinions and ideas and tasks. So to go into solitude before God is really counterintuitive. French intellectual Simone Weil says this, Waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. Solitude's posture, solitude's primary activity, if you can call it that, is waiting patiently in expectation. How much of that posture informs the way we move about in the world? This quiet but active listening is what Christians have come to call listening prayer. Dr. Ayla Tassi from Kenya suggests these following keys when it comes to listening prayer. He says, there's so much going on in our lives. We're so distracted by so much that we need, one, a quiet place. We need a quiet time. And we need a quiet heart. A quiet place is just a place, whether it's in your home or outside the home, that's distraction-free where you're away from your computer, away from your phone, where you're away from things that can turn your attention away from God. A quiet time is just a carved-out time where you can sit quietly in the presence of God. A quiet heart is recognizing that our no heart is full of noise and full of distractions and anxieties and anger and burdens. And in solitude, we don't say that those don't exist. We just park them for a while and say, God, you've got this. I'm here for you. And in solitude, we spend our time just listening for God. And you're saying, like, how do you listen for God? Sometimes it's a clear voice. It says, Andrew, I want you to, why, why are you feeling that way? 
But more often than not, God speaks to us in our minds through our thoughts. Put it this way. When you're having a conversation with somebody, you're actually guiding their thoughts because they're not thinking about what you're thinking about until you say something and then they th think about, oh, yeah, well, how is the weather today? Or how about the nationals? Or but how was your weekend? I wasn't thinking about my weekend until you asked me about the weekend. Speech is guided thought. But God can reach directly into our minds and guide our thoughts. And that's how we often what we're listening for as we are in solitude. So what are the ways that we can listen for God in our thoughts? Well, first, we can listen in Scripture. When we read Scripture, we allow God's Spirit to guide us in the reading opening our hearts to say, God, what do you have to say to me today? What do you want to bring to my mind in Scripture today? And this is a little bit of a different kind of reading of Scripture than studying Scripture, which is just as important, where we look at the history and the context and the original language and the meanings of the words. And as we were learning this in our teaching time, how there's patterns to recognize of, of storytelling that are important for us to note. That's an important discipline. But when we read for listening in listening prayer, we're just simply in solitude, allowing God to, to guide our thoughts and to pay attention to what God wants us to pay attention to in the reading of Scripture. And trust that Jesus, our leader, is leading us in the text. So we listen to God guiding us in Scripture. We also listen to God through the circumstances of our life. We're looking for God's activity unfolding in the story of our lives. We say, God, where, where are you at work? God, where are you inviting me to trust you more in the areas that I'm not really trusting you? What points of fear or anxiety are pointing to things that I'm holding on to too much? Third, we listen to the quiet whisperings in our hearts that we learn to trust God's Spirit in our desires. Not all of our desires are from God's Spirit, where we need to spend time in solitude to recognize that. We're not always clear about God's intention for us, but when we give space in solitude to pay attention to our desires, that can often guide us to pay attention to God's desires in us. Fourth, we can li oh, so listen to God guiding us in Scripture, in circumstances, in our hearts, desires, and forth through the wise and mature counsel of other Jesus followers, especially those who know us and have seen us over time. They help us pay attention to the things that we might not see. Listening to God is not a solo task, especially when it comes to the above. Scripture, circumstances, our desires. Wise people around us are often the ones that help us see God at work in our lives. And ultimately, lastly, God can speak to us directly. But it's not often the most common way that God speaks. So, what might listening to God be like? It, uh, Rob read for us 1 Kings chapter 19, where Elijah encounters God in solitude on a mountaintop. And we find there that God's voice doesn't come in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. Big, loud, exciting events. But we're told God's voice comes in a gentle whisper. We often call this the still, small voice of God. Another way to translate the Hebrew scripture for that phrase is the sound 
of gentle silence. The sound of gentle silence. How often do we experience the sound of gentle silence? Now, this is why quiet and solitude is one of the best environments for hearing God. It's where we learn to discern God's voice from all the other voices. Kids, I know most, you probably haven't been listening to my voice for most of this time, but you know, you can ask your parents about a transistor radio. A transistor radio is this noise-making device that actually plugs into the wall, and there's a dial on it, and you have to wiggle it around to find channel, because most of the time it's like, shh, it's like static, until you hear a voice, and you hear another voice, and you hear another voice, and you eventually find the voices that you enjoy listening to. And that's really a lot about what we do as children of God, listening to God's voice, tuning in. Solitude is how we dial in to God's voice. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, and, those, and he calls his sheep as the ones who follow him because they recognize and they know his voice. When we spend time in solitude, we learn to recognize Jesus' voice to us. Now, encountering God isn't just for our it's for the sake of others. Being alone with God is what we do so that we can return to the world with a sense of calling and purpose and identity. Being alone with God is done so that we can return to bear God's love even more faithfully and graciously and fully in the world in ways that we would not be able to do, where we, depend, where we, where we would often depend on the world recognizing us or the world reciprocating what we do for them. That's why solitude is this invitation for every follower of Jesus, no matter your personality type, no matter your place in life. I wonder, as we conclude this series, will you take a step further in this practice? It could be doing two minutes of solitude a day. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's half an hour. Maybe it's a day of solitude. What is God inviting you into that you might experience the fullness of all that God has for you, shaping you for the sake of others. Amen.